How y'all doing today? Good. My name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. I work with the Greenhouse, which is our college age and young adult ministry. Yeah, that's them right there. Um, for the shout out there and I guess the response to the shout out. Um, so glad you joined us. This is, I want to give you a special welcome too. If this is your first time with us, we're just thrilled that you're with us. Uh, let's pray and then we'll dive in. God, we are here today because we want to learn. We want to learn from you. Father, we know that you uh, um, have way bigger plans and desires for our, our lives than we could ever imagine. So God, we pray that today we would be listeners, we'd not only be hearers, but we would be doers of your word. God, help us to um, be attentive and allow you to have your way in us. And uh, we just lift up this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, growing up, I remember visiting my grandpa in Florida and being fascinated with all kinds of things about his life. He was a fisherman and a, a woodworker. Um, I don't know about you, but I have distinct smells that I can still smell from those days. I remember smelling two-stroke you know, gas oil mixture from going fishing with him. I remember cleaning fish and feeding them to the birds and just what that smelled like. I remember his tobacco smoke, his tobacco pipe. It was one of the coolest smells ever. And my grandpa was one of the first people that I can remember who used hearing aids. He had a, a set of hearing aids and he developed some very interesting practices with those hearing aids. If he wanted to hear you, he would, you would often see him put one finger in his ear and he would make a tight twist and he could hear every word you said. But if he wanted to tune you out, he would just turn them off. And I'm convinced there were times that my grandma would be griping at him and he didn't hear a single word that she said. That was probably the first example of selecting selective listening that I remember. But as I've gotten older, I begin to catch myself doing the same thing. I know I've, I've tuned out my parents at times growing up, and, and I know I've caught myself tuning out other important people in my life. People who wanted to, probably needed, needed to speak into my life had something important for me to say. People like my wife. Well, today, Paul's gonna address all of us as people who either have or could become selective listeners as it relates to what God wants to speak into our lives. Sometimes our selective listening is due to blind spots that we have. And sometimes it's rooted more in maybe deeper issues like a hard heart. Where we've kind of closed part of ourselves or all of us off to what God wants to, to do in us. I've, I've loved working our, our way through Paul's first letter to this church at Thessalonica. This is an incredible section of the New Testament, highlighting who this church was, but also speaking into what God's will and desires are for us as his church today. The title of the series, if you have been with us, is, as we've been working this, is The Church at Her Best. And I firmly believe that the church is at her best when she lives in the gospel and walks faithfully with her Savior, Jesus. And we've seen what a beautiful church looks like as we've walked through this letter. So here's what we're going to be about this morning. Paul is bringing his letter to a close. He's giving this church kind of a final shot in the arm. These aren't just kind of random thoughts that Paul just says, I, I just got to jam them in at the end of this. No, he knows these people like a dad knows his kids. And he knows this culture, where this city and region were, what they were like. And he's speaking into their lives in areas where he's got some concern that this could be a place where they get tripped up in their faith. 
And so we pick up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 19. If you have a web-enabled device, you can flip or tap your way there. If you have a Bible, you can flip over. This is what Paul writes. Five words. He says this, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Did you see how I didn't know how to do that with my hands? It happens to me every once in a while. Before we move too far along here, what I want to do is I want to take a, just a moment and I want to talk about who the Holy Spirit is, what his role looks like in the life of a Christ follower, and then what it means to quench the Spirit. So first, who is he? Well, we know that from, the, from our read of the Bible that he's the third person of the Trinity. He's fully God. And I use the word he, he's a person. So sometimes you'll hear people say it. That's not how we relate to the Holy Spirit. He is a he, okay? Second, what's his role? Well, Jesus called him the helper and the spirit of truth. He's the one who comes alongside of us. Uh, the word there is the, he's the paraclete or the word in Greek is parakletos. Jesus said that after he would be crucified, the Holy Spirit would be sent to be with the disciples and live in them. So the Holy Spirit indwells someone who has been spiritually reborn. Well, what's that all about? Well, we're, I don't know if you know this, but we're born into the world. We're not born into the world spiritually alive. We're born into the world spiritually dead. And it's because of sin. Sin creates a separation between us and God. God's holy and we're not. And so we, we're, we, have, this, we have this dilemma but the reality is God, the Son, became Jesus the man. He walked on this earth. He, he lived in, a, in such a way that he was able to pay for all of our sin by dying on the cross. And so what he did in dying on the cross is he took your sin onto himself and he gave you his righteousness so that you and I could be with a holy God forever, not only in this life, but also in the next life. And so when someone believes in Jesus, when they put their trust in him, when they repent of their sin, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and he regenerates us. He makes us come alive. And so that's what it means to be spiritually reborn. Well, what else does the Holy Spirit do? He, we, we're told in the, the book of John that he convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So he has a role in the life of someone who's not a Christian. Again, pointing them to Jesus. John also tells us this, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. His, his focus is to glorify Jesus the son and he, what he does is he takes God's word and he declares it to us. So that would be a quick kind of, just a couple minute theological primer on, on who the Holy Spirit is. Now what does it mean to quench the spirit? When you, when you read the beginning of the book of Acts, you see his presence displayed as fire. In Acts 2 at Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out on lots of people and the gospel is proclaimed in lots of different languages. Acts 2 says that divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of the early disciples. And so the Holy Spirit is often symbolized by fire in the New Testament. And what Paul is exhorting this church to do is this, don't extinguish or put out the fire of God's spirit who's at work in your life and in the church. The Greek word for quench there is this word sabenami. And the sense of the word is to stifle or extinguish a fire. And the idea is that God's spirit is already at work. He's doing something. And to quench the spirit means that we stand in the way of a work 
that's already in progress. And so at New Hope, we believe that we serve a God who is always at work around us. He's active. He's involved in our lives. And, and our job is to get on the same page with what he's doing. So before we begin and try to, uh, to further illustrate and apply this, we have to actually look at the next verse. Because in verse 20, Paul is going to show us how we put out the fire of God's spirit. And so let's look at that. Verse 20, Paul says this. He says, do not despise prophecies. So the gift of prophecy that Paul was talking about here was the ability to receive and communicate direct revelations from God before the New Testament was completed. And that's a key thought to hold in your mind while we're looking at this verse. When Paul wrote this letter to this church, the New Testament was still being written. God was still speaking through Paul and the other New Testament writers exactly what he wanted for us to have in the New Testament section of our Bibles. And after a series of early church councils, we hold to the fact that scripture is complete. In other words, God's no longer inspiring new scripture. It's done. So how the early church came up with what to include and what to exclude from the New Testament was actually pretty straightforward. And I don't want to dumb it down too much, but here are the four main questions that the early church used as they considered what should, be, what should make it into our Bibles. The first one was this. Was the, the author an apostle or did he have a close connection with an apostle? In other words, did he walk with Jesus or was he a friend of someone who walked with Jesus? Two, was the book being accepted uh, by the body of Christ at large? In other words, these letters were circulated from one church to the next. And so the churches had um, a way of kind of saying, yeah, that one has the ping of just God's spirit. Three, did the, the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching? I mean, it's amazing to see the thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation, just how God's word just fits together. And then four, did the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect a work of the Holy Spirit? So how do we look at this passage in light of the fact that the canon of scripture it's closed today. In other words, the Bible, God's written word to us, it's complete. There's no new direct revelation given to us that would be on par with God's word. So here's how I think we should approach this. Often when we think, when we hear the, the word prophecy, we think of the idea of predicting or foretelling future events. But way more often in God's word, the prophet was a preacher communicating God's word to his people. That's what we call forthtelling. And so instead of foretelling, that would be predicting the future, the prophet's job was to forthtell, to proclaim the word of God to God's people, often calling God's people back to himself. I love what John Calvin says about this. John says this, he says, by the term prophesying, I do not understand the gift of foretelling the future, but the science of interpreting scripture so that a prophet is an interpreter of the will of God. So how do we understand this verse in light of the fact that scripture is complete? Well, I love what Warren Wearsby has to say about this. Warren writes this, he says, today we have a completed revelation in the word of God and there's no need for prophets. The apostles and prophets help lay the foundation of the church and have now passed from the scene. The only prophetic ministry we have is the preaching and teaching of the word of God. 
So if we were to place this understanding of prophecy back into Paul's letter to this church, what God is communicating to us today is that we shouldn't despise the proclamation of the word of God. That is, a preacher preaches the word. We as God's people would wanna approach God's word being taught with open hands and an open heart. We wanna take a, a finger to our hearing aids, so to speak, and turn them all the way up to 11. We don't wanna be people who selectively listen to the word of God. We wanna be all ears, people who eagerly hear and apply the word of God to our lives. Don't despise prophecies. The verb despise there is the Greek word exutheneo. And the sense of the word is this. It's to treat someone contemptuously as if completely worthless and despicable. So when someone despises prophecies, who are they treating with contempt? Who are they having disdain for or treating as worthless or despicable? Is it the preacher no, it's the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. The one whose role it is to guide us into all truth. The one whose role it is to glorify Jesus the son and take God's word and declare it to us. So when you reject the prophetic proclamation of God's word, you're treating the Holy Spirit with disdain as someone who's worthless and despicable. And when you do that, it's like you throw water on fire. You put out the fire of the Holy Spirit. You extinguish his power and his work in your life. See, what made this church that we're looking at so attractive is that when they heard the word of God preached, you know, if you were to put a finger where you're at in the Bible and just flip back a page, chapter two, verse 13, Paul says that when they heard the word of God, which you received from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it truly is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. That's the kind of people we wanna be. That's the posture we wanna have when the word of God is preached. God, I'm open to what you wanna do in my life. Speak to me and I will hear you and I will yield and obey. Now, speaking kind of in a, in a broad brush kind of way, where do we as people tend to be selective listeners when the word of God is proclaimed? Where do we tend to come to God and his word with, instead of open hands, clenched fists? We kind of hold our hands up to our ears and I'm not listening. That's right here. I've got three thoughts, three areas. The first one is places where we have idols in our lives. Tim Keller says that the human heart is an idol factory. It's something that just, we just naturally move in that direction. Two, it's places where we've experienced profound hurt. Hurt and woundedness can cause us to become so self-focused that we struggle to hear. It's like the pain is so loud that it drowns out God wanting to speak into our lives. And three, places where we're struggling with trusting God. Fear can often cause us to not hear God clearly. 
Think about it. All three of those areas can cause us to just tune God and his word right out of our lives. We've got to ask ourselves this question. Why? Why do we pursue idols in our lives? I love what Tim says. I don't have it up on, on the screen here, but I just want you to listen. Tim Keller says this. If I have that thing, that idol, then I will feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value and I'll feel significant and secure. He goes on, he says, idols give us a sense of being in control and we can locate them by looking at our worst nightmares. What do, you, what do we fear the most? What if we lost it would make life not worth living? We make an area an idol because we believe somehow that that idol will meet a God-given need that we have. And instead of trusting God, we place our trust somewhere else. Money, stuff, security, people, power, fame, identity, accomplishments. It often seems easier to trust in what we see rather than what we don't see. It's easier to trust a visible idol than to live by faith in an unseen reality. And so what an idol does is it forces us to show our hand. That's the thing. Idols just reveal. They expose us. They expose our hearts. I heard a pastor friend of mine say this decades ago, and I might have even shared this at some point, you know, in the last couple years. I sometimes have a hard time remembering kind of what I have shared and what I haven't. But he said this. He says, whatever captures our hearts will bend our knees. And that's so true. Whatever captures our hearts is what we'll worship. It's what we give our time and our treasure and our talents to. And what happens as an idol takes root in our lives is that we begin to resist God's word. Like here's an example of what I deal with all the time in, in my, kind of my realm of ministry. When people get caught up with anything sexual outside of a, a one-man, one-woman covenant marriage relationship, that person becomes extremely resistant to hearing God's word preached against sexual immorality. Idols often cause us to rationalize what we do, our sin. We think stuff like this, hey, we're not doing anything wrong. You know, we love each other. God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? I'm not hurting anyone. It's really not that big of a deal. When we engage in idol worship, with this scenario, again, it would be sex outside the boundaries God has established for us. It deadens our ability to listen and obey. Now, why did I pick this, this topic? Because I believe this is kind of a universal struggle, both for the church and for the culture at large. Nothing puts out the fire of the Holy Spirit more quickly, in my opinion, in our lives than sexual morality. This could be applied to other idols as well. You could think about it this way. When we worship the God of the Bible, we listen and obey his word. But when we worship a false God, we end up listening and obeying a false word from a false God. Jesus said it like this. You can't serve two masters. And the context of what he was talking about was money. But the principle applies to all idol worship. 
But here's the thing. You can always repent. You can always turn back to God. See, that's what made this church come alive in the first place. Do you remember? They turned to, away from idols and they, and they turned to Jesus to serve the living and true God. And the tremors of their repentance were felt all throughout this region of the world. Repentance simply means to turn away from. And so when we repent, we turn away from idols and we turn toward God and his word. And we, we come with open hands and an open heart and, and we're soft in the way we interact with God and his word. I think a key to repentance is getting rid of the idol altogether. If it's porn, you wipe anything that has porn on it out. You put clear boundaries in place. You put good filtering software in place. You invite help from others. And you do the deeper, harder work of looking into your heart and trying to figure out why do I go here in the first place? You know, if it's a sexual relationship outside of your marriage, you cut it off completely. You don't play with fire anymore. You de delete social media connections and all communications with that person. You get help. You let others know where you're at and you invite them to help you. The same thing if it's a dating relationship with someone and you find yourself sinning against each other sexually. You put clear boundaries up. You cut off all sexual interaction. And again, you invite others to come and speak into that area and help you in that area of your life. Now, I know I've shared some of my life with you over the last couple of years. I'm gonna share more of it today. I, I became a Christian when I was a freshman in college. And I met my wife before I became a Christian. And we got involved sexually with each other. And then we became Christians. And what we did is we drug that stuff into our walk with God. And what it was, it was doing, it was, it was hindering our ability to pursue Jesus with all of our hearts. And so if you were to fast forward to the fall of, of our sophomore year, there was a group of people that were gonna come from Wheaton College down to the University of Illinois where we went to school. And they had experienced what they called a revival, where what they were doing on their campuses, they were taking all of these idols and they were burning them. And so they came down and they gave people a chance to confess their sin publicly. We haven't done that here, have we yet? And we, when I heard that, I was like, I'm in. And I went up in front of people that I knew and people that I didn't know. And I said, this is what's going on in my life. I don't want to do it anymore. And God came real close to us. And it was like, I, I still mark that as a moment where really for the last 20 something years, I feel like God's been really close to us. And what we decided to do is we put some clear boundaries in place. We said, you know what? We're gonna keep our, the door open to wherever we're at, you know, so that we're never behind a closed door. And, and we're gonna like, Make sure that like, you know, at certain time, we're just gonna kind of cut things off and just say, you know, good night. People say like, there's not a whole lot of good that goes on after 12 o'clock. For us, it was like after nine o'clock. So, uh, and, then, and then the other thing we decided to do is we just said, we're gonna put some boundaries in place physically. And so we said, you know what? Hey, we're, we're kind of the motor starts to get revved up is in the area of kissing. So we're not gonna kiss anymore until the day we get married. By the grace of God. That's what real repentance looks like. That's the work that God did in us. That's, that's a glory to God. 
Repentance is stepping away from the sin. And instead of just repeating sin over and over again like it's Groundhog Day, you say, no more of that. I belong to Jesus. I'm his. I want the Spirit's power in my life, and I don't want to put out his flame in me anymore. And so repentance reignites the Holy Spirit's flame in your life. Look where Paul goes next. He says, don't despise prophecies. And then verse 21, he says this, but test everything. Hold fast to what's good. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about testing something, I think about what happened just after Paul left Thessalonica. You know, he got chased out of town, and the place he went to next was the town not too far away, Berea, about 45 miles to the west. We're told in Acts 17 that, when, that these people did exactly what Paul exhorts the church in Thessalonica to do, to test everything. The, Greek, the word there in the Greek is the word dokimazo, and it implies a careful examination. And so how did the Bereans test everything? Well, what they did is they received the word of God with all eagerness, but they weren't gullible. They opened up their Bibles and examined the scriptures daily. And at that point, they had the Old Testament. So they knew the Old Testament and they would hold it up and compare what was being taught to them with what they had in the Old Testament. So what you and I need to do is this. We need to become discerners of truth. And how do we do that? We gotta know God's word. So we don't wanna put out the Spirit's power by despising the word of God as it's proclaimed, but we also wanna make sure that what's being proclaimed is in alignment with this book. And I think the challenge for us today is that there is no shortcut to knowing God's word. You have to put the time in to read it and know what it says. So where do we start? I just got a couple thoughts for you. First, consider reading the entire Bible in a year. Great to get the big picture, the meta-narrative of the story of redemption. Two, when you read the Old Testament or the New Testament, you want to read an entire letter or an entire book at one time. You don't want to just kind of grab something and kind of pull it out. Because when you do that, you actually strip it right out of the context that it was written in. And so when you think about this, think context is king. Three, uh, get a good commentary. People sometimes think if you use a commentary, you're cheating. You're not cheating. Okay, I'm just telling you right now. You are allowed to use a commentary. And the way I think about a commentary is like this. I think I'm in a small group with the writer of the commentary, and I'm just thinking this guy is pouring into my life. And so all the years of, of study and understanding that he has, he is just helping me to understand context, culture, background, original language, stuff that it would take a, a focused life to figure all that stuff out. And then four, invite other people to speak into what you're, what you're uh, reading and what you're learning. I oftentimes think of finding more mature Christians and just kind of bouncing, hey, this is, what I'm, I'm, this is my take on this. What do you think? But again, what the Brians did was awesome because they leaned into the word of God being proclaimed. They didn't tune it out, but then they held it up next to the word of God to test it. And if it passed the test, what'd they do? They did what Paul encouraged this church to do. They held fast to what is good. I love the light one commentary writer sheds on this section. He wrote this. He said, hold fast, that, that word in the Greek may mean to possess. But here it has the connotation of remember 
the teaching. See, I wouldn't have picked that up just from a normal read of scripture. They should retain it with the intent of allowing it to shape their lives in Christ. Isn't that interesting? So holding fast to what's good means that we remember the teaching of God's word so that it actually changes us. So when you're hearing God's word being preached, as you apply discernment, your ultimate goal is to retain something that's true and good and allow it to transform you. In other words, application is huge. Okay, the last verse verse we're gonna look at today. Verse 22, Paul writes this. He says, abstain from every form of evil. When I read that, you know, I don't see a whole lot of wiggle room there. If God is saying to abstain from every form of evil, that to me would seem pretty comprehensive. The reason, I'm sorry, there really isn't a place to play around with sin. And there's a reason why Paul writes that. It's because when someone becomes a follower of Jesus, the gospel sets us free from the power of sin and death and hell. We're free people, but we're not to abuse the grace we're given. Did you know that the Bible actually teaches that grace moves us away from sin and and evil? Paul writes this in another place in the New Testament. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, listen, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. And so the gospel trains us to move away from the sin. And I see this as a parallel thought with abstaining from every form of evil. See, the goal of the Christian life isn't rule keeping. It's not a bunch of do's and don'ts. But you can't read the Bible and not see, again, a strong thread of holiness woven throughout it. Because the reality is, that's, is that God's rescued us from sin. I, I will always argue that the greatest freedom we've been given is the freedom from sin rather than the freedom to sin. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to go back to slavery. And so to, to abstain from every form of evil is a blessing to you and me. Why? Because when you participate in evil, it damages you. Sin destroys. Sin promises everything but delivers nothing. Okay, so over this past week, you know, the pastors at New Hope, we got a chance to get away. And really, it was really neat. Mark led us through a number of of kind of things that we did together. And one of the things was we watched a message that was preached by a guy named Matt Chandler. And it was given at a pastor's conference a couple years ago. And, and what Matt shared was so good. He challenged pastors and church leaders to not play with sin. I was like, that's what I'm talking about. Perfect. He challenged us to put a stake in the ground and not have anything to do with the stuff in our culture. That's ungodly. And it was such an encouragement to me because for years now, I've had some really clear boundaries in my life as far as how I navigate some of the pitfalls in our culture. 
And because of some of my brokenness uh, and the things I gave myself to before I became a Christian, I have put boundaries in place that at times have made me feel like just a complete alien and stranger, sometimes a weirdo in our world. And so if you know me, you know I have, uh, I have social media accounts. But because of the visual nature of most social media, especially stuff like Instagram, you know, I haven't felt comfortable using that stuff. See, I'm afraid that I might pursue something and it might damage me or hurt others that are close to me. So I've just tried to be creative where, where I can be and, and, and be good with the fact that the freedom that I have from sin is more important than my freedom to engage with culture. And so quite honestly, this is what I've done. My, daughter, my oldest daughter and I have kind of swapped chores. Like I, I do her chores and she does my social media. And that's not because I want to give her this garbage that she has to deal with, but she's just wiser in how she, she deals with it. She doesn't have all the crap in her life that I had from 18 years of walking without Christ. And so that's been a huge help and a blessing to me. But I just want to share that humbly. I'm weak, and I know where I'm weak. And because of that, I've abstained from certain things in our culture that I don't think I can navigate and honor Christ in. See, for me, knowing Christ and having the Holy Spirit's fire alive in me is more important than blank. Whatever. So I end with this challenge. Where do you need to abstain from something that you know has been deadening you to the Holy Spirit's work in you? Where do you need to renounce a habit or a pattern that's hardening your heart toward God and his word? Is there some area that you need to invite someone else to walk closely with you in? Paul says that we're to make no provision for the flesh to live according to it. But he says we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to put on the gospel. Where are you allowing yourself to make provision for the flesh? Maybe it is Instagram. Maybe it's Netflix. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, an audience the size is so, so many diverse places that we can make provision for the flesh. But let's purpose to do this. To abstain from every form of evil. By the grace of God, let's starve the flesh and feed the spirit. And if we do that, I really think we're saying to God, Speak to me. Move in my life. Use me for your purposes. Father, I'm all ears. I'm listening. Have your way in me. I believe the church is at her best when she's yielded to God and his word. And when she approaches God's word with open hands and an open heart. Let's be the church at her best. Let's pray. I'm always challenged, Father, when I think about all these things that I've just said. Really, I'm preaching to myself. Lord, I know that the life we have here is not a game. The stakes are sky high. I think just the chance to be reminded this morning of of the truth of your word and the truth about what sin does to us and what idols do to us. God, I pray that you would expose us just so that we can see 
more of who we are and how we need you in our lives. Continue the work of, of sanctifying us, cleaning us up, of making us more like Jesus. Lord, help us today to retain, to apply. Each, per, each person here would, would hear clearly from you where you want to work in them. Help us to be soft toward you and your word. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for being here this week. We're so glad you joined us. Hope you have a great week.